get out of the comfort zone and get into the courage zone. Mm -hmm. How do you know you're in that courage zone? It feels awkward. Sometimes it hurts. Right. Hey, welcome to the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast, the number one show for passionate physical therapists looking to start and grow an even more successful cash-based physical therapy business. I'm your host, Aaron LeBauer. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now, before we get to the episode, real quick, if you're new to the show or haven't picked up your Cash PT checklist yet, then you're definitely missing out. This checklist lays out all the steps you need to start a cash-based physical therapy business. If you want me to send that to you, then just text CASHPT to 444-999. That's C-A-S-H-P-T to the number 444-999. And you'll get this essential checklist. Now on to the show. Hello, welcome back to the Cash PT Lunch Hour. This is Aaron LeVauer, your host. And today I have another special guest and I didn't have to look too far to find the guest today, but uh, he comes from far away. Like this is my, this, today's guest is Gil Zimmerman. And Gil is not only um, an entrepreneur and someone who's uh, doing some amazing things and like I want you guys to learn some lessons from him, but he's also someone I spend a lot of time with. Uh, after college, I lived in Israel for a year and Gil is a relative and we spent, you know, one or two weekends a month hanging out like for the whole year, maybe more. And I got to know him really well. And he lives in Boston. So I'm not really in touch with Gil's business other than what it looks like from afar. But I know what he's doing is incredible. And so um, Bill, uh, Gil has been uh, uh, built his own businesses and now part of Cisco. And if you guys don't know, Cisco is one of the largest tech companies. And Gil is an expert at cybersecurity. Yada, yada. Gil, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure. and Thank you. Appreciate yeah. the opportunity to get a chance to talk to you and to your followers, um, to the community. So thanks. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So I just want to take, like, remember, like, I want to take people back to when I first met you. You remember? So it's like, it was on a bus in Israel. Okay. I think we were in high school, right? That's right. Yeah. Right. And you came on and you had an American accent, but you didn't have all the, the words. And it was, it was, I was perplexed because <laughs> you grew up yes. in LA. But then I grew up in Irvine, California, yeah. semi. I'm kind of a hybrid, so I spent half my time in Israel and half my time in the States. And then I moved back, actually, for my junior year in high school. Mm -hmm. By the time we met, you know, my English was pretty much, you know, established. Yeah. But I'd been, like, out of touch in terms of slang and just right. you know, practicing my English for, for quite a few years. So Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it was a little outdated, I would say. Yeah, it was funny, but it was yeah. it was good. And we had a great time and connected. And I think, you know, being about the same age, it was, uh, we had, you know, it was good. And then I came after college back to Israel and you were in the Army. That's right. So I think I was right. I was just about finishing the Army. Or was I still in the Army? You were in, I think your pro, was your program four years and you did three yeah. or you were in that third, maybe beginning of the third year. Third year. Yeah. So just explain, most people here don't, are listening aren't going to know, like, can you just explain like growing up in Israel, like how everyone becomes part of the Army and then what you do in the Army that yeah. kind of set the stage for where you are now? Sure. So just a little bit of background. I'm a dual citizen. So I got you know, an American and Israeli as well. And then my folks moved back when I was in high school, as I mentioned. Um, and in Israel, there's a mandatory draft. 
So unlike here in the States where we only draft when there's, uh, you know, we have a volunteer uh, military service, but uh, we draft when there's a necessity. In Israel, since it's basically been in a state of emergency since its inception, uh, there's a mandatory draft since the dawn of time. Um, what that means is a three-year service for men and a two-year service for women. Um, and actually, kind of your service is determined by your, um, your, your basically your fit to various roles based on your physical and mental profile. Uh, very big on profiling. So you go through a series of rigorous tests, um, background checks, et cetera, to kind of figure out what the best match for you is. And then uh, if it fits, there's uh, investments that are made prior to your draft. So you can get, if you're drafted into an elite unit, um, whether that's, you know, elite fighting unit or elite uh, cyber unit, for example, you get kind of pre-screened um, and you go through the rigors of basically getting trained, um, which is what happened to me. So uh, I was part of a crew of about 8,000 high schoolers that got earmarked as potential software developers. Uh, we get recruited. Every year, about 8,000 get selected. Um, 80 graduate the course, which is a year long. Um, and in our case, it would dwindle down to 40. So 80, 80 begin the course, sorry, and 40 graduate. Mm-hmm. And then they farm you off to various units as a software developer in the military. Uh, and I got farmed off into, into the military intelligence branches where I uh, got a chance to practice my software skills. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. So if we cover anything that's top secret, you just let me know. We'll cut I'll it let out. You know. Yeah, we <laughs> meet certain parts of your podcast, but uh, you know, yeah, maybe. yeah. So, but I remember at that time, one of your friends um, was developing like the Messenger platform. That's right. That was ninety-seven, which is crazy. Like that was in ninety-seven. That was two years after we had like internet in every dorm room in my in my in in college. Whereas the year before, I think it was nine. We had I had to log into a. Um, a Unix server to do email. It's like all of a sudden, like three years. Like, yeah. Tell us like about that time. Like what were some of the things that you were doing? How'd you get into software? You know? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things uh, that for me was kind of a trigger was kind of serving in the, um, in the software world in a, in a military setting. Um, it's not as well funded, I would say, to say the least uh, relative to, you know, us um, funding. Um, you have to be innovative. So necessity in my mind is kind of the mother of innovation. Um, and you see it in small businesses and large businesses alike. So you got to get creative and you got to figure out how you're going to win with what you have. Um, and especially when kind of, uh, you know, the consequences are very high, it forces you to get really, really creative and gritty. Um, and you know, the, the messaging thing was, you know, outside of the military, um, you know, service, but a lot of the ideas come from military examples where you basically have to build something because you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, I think you, what you're referring to is a couple of guys that went to school with me at uh, Tel Aviv University afterwards that started this company called ICQ, uh, sold to AOL. It was one of the first Israeli mega exits. Um, and they built this chat platform because they didn't want to have to log in, like you're saying, to the Unix servers and go into like message boards, et cetera. And while they were playing games, they want to be able to chat live. Mm-hmm. So that was the necessity. And they built this thing and then ended up selling it for about $400 million to uh, AOL. Wow. Thinking, yeah. And that's then. what became AOL Instant Messenger. That's right. right? Yeah. Which is, is that the similar type of platform that pretty much everyone's using now, Facebook and Instagram and all that? I think that? it's a precursor to a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's evolved tremendously since then. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it's built off of that, but I think that inspired a lot of uh, kind of young entrepreneurs mm-hmm. to really kind of change how they're thinking about the potential of little, small, little applications that are useful to wide swaths of the population. Like if yeah. you can make a real impact on someone's life, um, you know, and there's a lot of people out there, then uh, you can have a good outcome. 
Yeah. So did you, um, after the army, did you know you wanted to go into business or were you just like, well, I'll go get a job as a software engineer. I'll do, so take me like through, you know, that, that first five to 10 year process. Sure. So as I said, I was in the software world in the, in the military working on projects. Most of them were like mind numbingly boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, huge data projects. Uh, it's not as glamorous as it's, uh, you know, um, as it looks from the outside. But you learn a ton. Um, and actually, when I when I left the military, I did take a job in kind of the, in the tech space just because I had those skills. And the salaries at the time were like three or four times what you would get, you know, for somebody that didn't have those skills. Right. Um, but I was actually contemplating when I wanted to go to school about a year after I uh, I got released. I wanted to go and study medicine because uh, that's what I kind of was passionate about, <clears throat> like your father and your uncles and right. you know, I guess it runs in the family. And, um, and I got convinced not to go down that path by a bunch of doctors that I talked to. <laughs> you're like, you're in the right space. You've got this like, you know, skill. Um, you don't want to spend, you know, the rest of your life inside of a hospital. Uh, or at least the next 15 years. Yeah. Um, and I was pretty passionate, you know, and learned a lot about you know, the tech space. And I felt that that was something that I could make as big of an impact on the world as I could, you know, as a, in, in the medicine space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I was working for this, basically the telephone company uh, of all places. Um, so Israel was going through privatization, you know, like here in the 80s, Ma Bell split up into AT&T and all these, you know, um, smaller companies. Israel went through a similar privatization um, for its telephone company. Okay. I worked for one of them. Um, and then I got a job for Sun Microsystems when Sun Microsystems, which was like the Google of the day, mm-hmm. making its way into that part of the world. They reached out to me and I took the gig and I was the third employee there. And I'm glad I did. Wow. Um, because that was like a skyrocketing you know, experience. Yeah. So you're a third, you're, you're third employee, like Sun in like in Israel or Sun like in Israel. yeah, Sun. yeah, yeah. There were plenty of employees before. Yeah. We were still very early stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. And then, um, like, how'd you get in? Like, like, what are the business? Like, you start a couple different businesses. You had a cybersecurity business, like CloudLock, right? Which is the most recent one. Were there other ones before? Yeah, I guess I've always, ever since I was a kid, been very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, uh, my first real job was selling uh, digital watches at the Orange County Swap Meet on weekends. <laughs> um, a friend of my dad had, uh, had a store called Time Zone. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been to the Orange County Swap Meet, you know, the merchants would come out on the weekends with their trucks, unload kind of, you know, the uh, showcases. And people would walk around, buy corn dogs and, you know, popcorn and stuff. And, uh, some people were selling chamois and others were selling, you know, leather uh, jackets. I was selling Casio and Seiko watches. Um, and I knew how to like set them up and yeah. I knew the ins and outs better than anybody else. Um, and I was selling like crazy. I was 14 years old. I think wow. I made like $4,000 in the first few months. Uh, wow. Yeah. And my dad was like, this is not a good idea. You've got too much money. <laughs> Years later, he told me that he told his friend not to give me a raise because it wasn't good for me. Oh, really? So you were selling on commission. Yeah. Oh, I was trying to sell on commission. Yeah. But uh, it took me a while to get there. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, that was kind of my first real job. Um, I started other smaller businesses just as a kid, you know, uh, side projects. But uh, I joined my first real startup company that I joined was a company called Backweb after okay. someone. Um, so Sun was kind of maturing. I'd been there for four years. You know, the stock had split and 
got back to where it was every six months, right? So this is just like a rocket ship. Um, but it, at some point I reached kind of like a, a plateau in terms of my personal growth and right. kind of what I was getting out of it. It was just repetitive and I didn't really feel like I was, you know, going anywhere. Um, and I didn't want to cement myself in kind of a big believer in the kind of the petering effect where people mm -hmm. rise to their highest level of incompetency. So I'm never satisfied. Um, right. And I took a product management gig at this company called Backweb, which was pioneering push technology back in the day. Um, and that was quite a ride. That company had IPO'd for $2 billion. Wow. Um, and then when the dot-com burst, mm -hmm. um, they went nosedive into the uh, penny stocks and that was the first time I'd ever gotten laid off um, that was my first kind of startup real startup experience I got the yeah. full effect wow that yeah. was yeah so what because I was living in San Francisco then and a couple of my friends worked for a startup that basically did the same thing it was like they had all the toys and then they had this uh, um, party like two-year IPO party with digital underground playing like yeah. Humpty Hump was standing like right here and then, yeah. like, the next week, it was, like, just, yeah. like, dust. Yeah, I think what happened is it was, you know, it was a bubble. Yeah. Um, and when the market collapsed, you know, the, a lot of the, those tech companies that didn't really have anything to kind of justify their market caps disappeared, and then the spend disappeared. Mm -hmm. So even the big players that were selling to these companies had nobody, like, customers couldn't pay anymore. So, right. you know, yeah, layoffs were massive. Yeah, so what was your role in the company and like what you like what happened after you got laid I was off? doing product management for like the base foundational product. Our product was basically um you know back in the day there wasn't really good internet bandwidth. Um everybody was on dial up, cable was just starting to roll out, especially if you were in that part of the world. Um and we basically had I would say the equivalent of like a screensaver that would download content while you weren't interacting with the computer. Mm -hmm. And that way we could download for hours and we could bring down very rich media and content that otherwise you'd be sitting there staring at your screen waiting for hours for it to download. Right. Um, and we use that for things like driver updates. You know, Logitech was a customer of ours that used that. You know, whenever you buy a new mouse or a keyboard, you get an automatic alert that says new software is available. Other companies copied that, like Microsoft, you know, with their Windows update and stuff like that. So th th we pioneered that space of basically polite push. Um, and I was the product manager, so basically interacting with customers and partners to figure out what we would need to build that they would pay for and get value out of and drive usage and translating that into like an engineering conversation to say, here's how and what we need to build um, so that we can address these market you know, requirements. Right. Um, and when our customers disappeared, when the dot-com burst, you know, uh, we couldn't fund our business anymore. And so we had to start laying people off. And it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because that was my ticket back to the United States. Mm -hmm. Got laid off. My wife was already laid off at the time too. So both of us were going to the unemployment office together. <laughs> and it made it really easy when I got, you know, the call from uh, a friend of mine from Sun who was like, hey, I got a friend in, uh, in Hopkinton, Massachusetts who had never heard of before. Right. Um, that's looking for, you know, talented people. You should meet him. Um, and that's how I got over here. That was awesome. Yeah, so you came back over to the United States. Well, you came back to the United States. So, so from high school to how old were you then? 20, probably 28? Yeah, um, 26. 26, okay. Yeah, so um, here, I want to go back and like create some relevance. Yeah. <laughs> the year I was living in Israel, 97, you and all your friends, you all had the big telephones, you know, the big cell, banana cell, yeah. cell phones, right? I came back to the United States and still no one had cell phones. 
Like yeah. people didn't have personal cell phones. Like you guys were actually at a certain point, like a step or two ahead of even yeah. San Francisco. Like I came back to the United States and went to San Francisco and I didn't have my a personal cell phone for two more years. Yeah. Um, and San Francisco is 10 years ahead of North Carolina, you know, and, and yeah. a lot of things. Did, were you guys, I mean, was, was internet in everyone's home or was it just like, you know, was it just like sort of like a staggered effect where like everyone had cell phones, but still not everyone had internet. Like what was, what was it that, yeah. that made that area, you know, in, in Tel Aviv and in Israel that's like helped you guys like learn all this and make it more, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, cutting edge, like, or whatever. Yeah. yeah I think it's a cultural thing. Um, you know, I don't know if it's status symbol or just appetite, but I do think like the Israeli culture is way more um, error, you know, and and um, accepting and risk, you know, rewarding. Yeah. So there's this culture of it's okay to try stuff that's like half baked versus yeah. fully baked. So the phones they work most of the time, right? <laughs> but not all the time. The coverage was pretty shitty, and um, and you'd lose, you'd drop calls left and right. Phones were like insanely expensive, uh, but you know culturally, people love to kind of try out new things and uh, and be and and I think more importantly, kind of feel like they're part of that. Um, and yeah. back at, at that time, like that technology revolution was starting to take hold. There had been like a few really stellar tech companies, kind of more established players like Cytex and Amdocs, and nice like big players, but the startup scene was starting to kind of percolate. And everybody wanted to be a part of it. So that was their way of being a part of it, trying applications, using phones, kind of the internet. Um, and I saw that, I've seen that in other countries too. Like if you travel to, you know, to South Korea, like I remember when I first got here in 2001, like my dial-up was like a one megabit connection at best. Yeah. Right? And I went to South Korea like three weeks later and they're at like 20. Wow. Everything was just like blazing fast. And I was like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So different countries have kind of different appetites for that. <clears throat> uh, but I'd say it's kind of it's evened out a lot since then. Because yeah, because I remember like we'd be hanging out and I'm, you know, like everyone's putting their little fanny pack. Of course, I didn't even have a fanny pack because that wasn't my style. It was like fanny pack, gun, cell phone, you know, it was like, or the gun was in the fanny pack, like the cell phone. I was yeah. like, I don't know. It was just, I was like, wow, I'm not the only one without any of these things. Right. Um, yeah. But do you, I mean, I remember also your cars were really expensive. It was it like, it's like I can afford a phone, even though it was probably I don't know five hundred dollars or more thousand. I don't know what it was more cost. Dead. But and but even though I can't do you know I the like car at that time wasn't a status symbol, but like a phone is like I'm connected. Is it yeah. was it something like that? Was it? I think the car is just like at that age was just so far out of reach. Yeah. Right. So the tax there is a hundred percent. You know. Yeah. So I mean, I could barely whatever, fit. take whatever you can buy here. It costs twice as much, literally twice as much or more. Yeah. over there and the gas costs like four times as much yeah so yeah if you're like in your 20s like it's not a matter of status symbol it's just like forget about it you can't right. afford to buy a car right right so you're like a really clinky yeah yeah so you feel like like the culture also like because i know there's a, like what the israeli companies on the stock market and they're like in a disproportionate amount yeah. of like israeli ipos like is there like what is it about the culture is you think it's like just the forgiveness that you mentioned, like people you want to make mistakes that allows people are more like entrepreneurial. They're starting up something new. Do you- yeah, I would say it's a, it's a combination of a few things. One, definitely the, the, you know, the appetite for risk, not for the sake of risk, but for the sake of progress um, and the, the willingness to kind of put up with the failures mm-hmm. right, come along with that. 
Um, I think that makes it really, really unique. And I see that still to this day. Like I sit on a bunch of boards on various companies, that most of them you know, start off in Israel and then move to the States. Um, and kind of the difference in working with Israeli customers versus you know, U.S. customers is, and I even see that between East Coast and West Coast you know, yeah. here domestically. Um, you know, the tolerance for kind of errors and mistakes is different in different territories. So when you have kind of an environment where it's okay to try and fail and you don't feel like, uh, or you're not branded as a failure because you failed, mm-hmm. on the contrary, you're branded as someone that's, you know, brave and, and aggressive and persistent. And it's clear that you're going to make it because look how often you're failing. Like this person is right. not going to stop until they figure it out. Um, that whole culture is very conducive to building up an ecosystem of startup companies. Yeah. You have that in the Silicon Valley. You've got that in spades and other pockets in the United States, in New York, in Boston, even in D.C. now, um, and definitely in Israel. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I find it's like the exact opposite when you go there. Like in Japan, like I have friends that live in yeah. Japan and they're dying to start something. Um, but it's like if they go off and do something and it doesn't succeed, they're like, you know, they're, they're, they have to live. like a lifelong failure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I see that where people get paralyzed by the fear of like, what if it fails? That's right. You know, and they just don't even get started or they spend months or years just going like, well, it might not work. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, my advice to people that kind of are stuck because they're afraid that they're going to potentially fail is, you know, think how scary it's going to be if you never try. Mm -hmm. How scary is that going to be that, you know, that you didn't even give it a shot? Um, and for sure it's going to fail because you never even try. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's your biggest failure or instead of failure, like I call it opportunity for learning and growth, but yes. I mean, what's the biggest, Um, biggest swing that you took then you missed the belt, missed the, missed the mark. So I, um, so just to kind of fast forward, I came here to the United States, worked for this company called DMC a few years, then worked for, I knew I wanted to start my own business and I knew I didn't figure out how to do that. So I went to work for a venture capital firm, which is where you go to raise money. Yeah. Um, and all the entrepreneurs that I talked to, and I, I went the high tech route, which is a little bit different than the cash PT kind of yeah. smaller business, unless you're building a chain of cash PT you know, franchises, which might be something that you're interested in doing. Um, but, you know, for large scale out uh, businesses in the high tech arena, you pretty much either go angel route, you know, route or you go to the venture uh, route. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to the watering hole to go see as many entrepreneurs as I could. And that's the venture capital world. Right. I joined as an EIR. Um, and I raised money for my first company. It was called Aprigo. Um, so I, I brought in two guys um, who were my partners, still are my partners, mm-hmm. and still work with me now at Cisco. Um, and we started this company. We had this vision of you know going out and protecting you know data all over the place with this cloud delivered software. Um, and it was a tough, tough slog. We raised five million dollars on this idea. Right? It was just an idea um, and a PowerPoint deck. Um, and we had $5 million that we were given with the responsibility, you know, and the expectation that we're going to turn that into a lot more and return this money to our investors. And there's a lot riding on it because at first it's just like, okay, holy crap, you know, I got to, you know, make a return for the, for my investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm taking a big risk here. I left the cushy job. Um, but then as you start to grow, you've got employees and their families and you've got customers that you're delivering. So like the pressure starts to mount and I'd say two years into it, we kind of, it was so rough because we were, we were ahead of the market. We were trying to sell something that today everybody understands, which is cloud, but right. it wasn't even called cloud at the time. There wasn't a name for it. It was on demand. Software as a service was just starting to get defined. Um, and it was kind of a little bit of a misfit because we were using that model to protect on-premise data. 
customers' data in their local environments. Um, and we decided to kill it. So we built this. We weren't using our own product. And because everything we were running was already running in the cloud, like we were using Salesforce and Google Docs and all these cloud-based applications. And so our own application wasn't helpful for us. So we had a hard time really understanding what value we were bringing to our customers. Mm -hmm. uh, we couldn't dog food, you know, in tech terms, you know, right. our own, eat our own dog food. So we built a version of our product for ourselves and we loved it. And it only worked for us, but we put it up on the marketplace to see if, you know, other people might have that. And then uh, we got a phone call from Facebook um, and they're like, look, we need what your product does. We tried building it. Ours didn't work. Yours seems to work. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a couple phone calls. Three phone calls later, we, was, we closed a $75,000 deal wow. with Facebook. And we're like, holy crap, this is so much easier than all this stuff we've been doing for the past two years. There's got to be more companies that want to be more like you know, Facebook than everybody else. Um, and so after a few more of those kind of, you know, gongs, yeah. um, we understood that we got to like completely change the face of our business. So we did what in kind of the tech world is called a pivot, mm -hmm. which is basically like yank the steering wheel and turn not 180 degrees, but like a very sharp 90 degree turn. Yeah. Um, we closed off our, our main product. We fired 97 customers and gave them back their subscription fees. Wow. And I had to fire half the team and tell them they're not, you know, we did, I did this like mental exercise of basically saying like, if I had to start this business again from scratch and everything is outside of the office doors, what do I let back in that's going to get me to where we need to go? And that's the exercise we did. Only the customers, investors, and employees that kind of, you know, were part of our new mission. Um, and so in one way, you could look at that as a major failure. We couldn't fulfill kind of the promise and the vision of the first one. But it was the launch pad for the second one. We wouldn't have had the second one. And that second one, five years later, we sold to Cisco for over $300 million. Wow. So, and that was, that was CloudLock? That was CloudLock, yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So, I mean, it's like you, you got to a, a point in the road that you were like, this isn't working, and you didn't stop. Yeah. You kind of like reflected back and were like, okay, like what the, what's the problem? And then someone came knocking and said, we want that. Yeah, well, we, we, we wanted it, and then we put it yeah. out there, and others wanted it, and we said, look, we can't do both, right? Yeah. we got to pick, and it's a tough, tough choice to make, and I think, you know, what helped, and, and I had a, a ton of pressure from my investors. They're like, you can't just close this thing down. It's working. Go sell that business and then start a new business, mm -hmm. and I basically, you know, was convinced and was able to convince them um, that the opportunity cost of not doing what I know to be right was far greater than the potential loss of, you know, leaving the other thing on the table. Like a one year of working on this company was worth, on this new thing, was worth, you know, a lot more than trying to salvage the old thing or kind of make the most of it. Right. Did that come down to like just an analysis of the numbers or was it, you know, a gut feeling that you were, you had? So actually that, that kind of, the need to go convince somebody, you know, somebody else helped me kind of solidify it. And the way I went about it is I took my main investor and I said, you're coming on a customer tour with uh -huh. me. Uh, I'm a big believer in that, like the market tells you, you know, what to do. You just got it's hard to listen sometimes through your own kind of <laughs> thoughts and noise, but you just listen to the customers and ask them. Sometimes they don't know explicitly to say, but if you can frame the question right, they'll answer. And so we went on a tour and I basically said to my existing customers and a few of my prospects, and I, I, I invited my investor to bring his own. 
Um, and I said, look, we have these two products and I described them. They do the same thing. One for all of your drives and, you know, servers and stuff that you have in your uh, data center. The other for all your cloud assets and data that you're building up there. And by the way, at the time, most organizations either had nothing up in the cloud or 10% of their data and applications about everything was on premise. And I said, we have these two products. Let's assume they each cost the dollar, which right. one you buy. You can only buy one. Yeah. Right. And without a hiccup, they all said cloud, which was almost shocking for me too. Like I, I wanted, yeah. I, I knew what most of them would say, but I had no idea all of them would say that. Mm -hmm. And the reason was, and I asked, I was like, why, you don't even have anything in the cloud. Why would you want to buy this thing? Like, well, because that's what my CEO is talking about. That's what my board is talking about. That's kind of a new problem they want, I want to address. And this old one was more like, yeah, we've had that problem, but we've been living with it for years. So we could live with it for a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the final nail in the coffin. And uh, we just basically said, okay, we're done. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. That's incredible. So, I mean, if it, you know, and you're playing with like a lot more zeros than I'm used to, you know, playing with. I mean, at this yeah. point, when you're like, okay, I'm going to lay off what, 70 people or 90 people? I don't know. how. Well, at the time, we were smaller. So it was only, it was like 20 people. Okay. Um, still, like 20 people. And, you know, if you're a decent human being, you're not just thinking about them. You're thinking about their significant others and their right. kids and their, you know, other dependents. Um, and it's not because they're bad people. They're just not, you know, on the same journey as you are. Yeah. So um, it, was, it was tough. And laying off customers was equally tough. Mm -hmm. Some of them got, like, really upset and wrote us nasty grams because wow. they loved their product. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. So how did you um – well, wow. like, but you didn't have to do that by yourself. I mean, you had a team of people. We were a small team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but were yeah. you like the, were you like the, the. I'm kind of the face of the organization, yeah. Yeah. co-founders, and we split it up. But yeah, you want to, you know, you want to maintain these relationships. And, um, and I think this is, goes back to some of that cultural aspect. Yeah. The early adopters, um, they're willing to put up with a lot more, but they're not necessarily a good because of that tolerance and because they want to see you succeed, mm -hmm. they might be a little biased towards right. you. It's the later customers when you start to scale that don't know you personally and don't have that personal connection that give you kind of the honest financial feedback. Mm -hmm. which is, I need this because this is saving me money or because it's actually good for my business or, you know, or not. Um, it's, it's more of a dry calculated, you know, right. relationship. So you, you guys kind of restructured and you renamed the business. Is that right? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the name of the product was CloudLock because it was yeah. about, you know, protecting your data in the cloud. Yeah. And it resonated really well. Um, and we went through this branding exercise. Actually, um, our, our marketing director at the time, Nathan, came up with the name. We mm -hmm. loved it. So we took it and we said, let's make it the name of our company. And then we're like Googling. We found out somebody already owned it. Yeah. Uh, or part of it, um, you know, a certain um, URL, and we had to go buy it. So mm -hmm. we believed in this thing so much, we actually went and paid somebody like tens of thousands of dollars to give up this name so wow. that we could, you know, take it as our own. And um, we never really like closed the old company. We just filed for, you know, renaming. Mm -hmm. um, and we shut operations down in December, like around Christmas. And we were like just grinding. Um, and rebranding everything in the product, the website, all the collateral, et cetera. And then we reemerged January 1st and launched, you know, this was in 2011, launched CloudLock as a new business and uh, haven't looked back since then. Wow, that's amazing. So 
What was the, how long did it take between, how long was it between then and when uh, Cisco came knocking for, you know, else help? I mean, what was the, what was the time gap? Well, we closed our, our acquisition in August of 2016. So mm-hmm. okay. uh, five years later, that's like all in, you know, Cisco came knocking along, you know, before that other suitors were there before that. Um, and we were about to go raise you know, a significant you know, growth round. We had term sheets for you know seventy million dollar investments mm-hmm. to take the company to the next level. And you know we joined forces with Cisco because we felt like we could do more together. Um, and they kind okay. of preempted that round. So help me, like help me, <laughs> you know, because yeah. like when you're when we're talking like hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars, like how do you like like it's hard to conceptualize what like a room full of a hundred million hundred dollar bills is going to be, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like what is that? I mean, is there a sort of like, uh, I don't know. Like, is there a disconnect? He's like, okay, it's just a bunch of numbers on the paper and I'm just going to have the same conversation with this person, whether we're talking about buying apples and oranges or, you know, buying, you know, corporations, or is there a process you went through over time that allowed you to get to this point where, you're like, yeah, I can go negotiate a $100 million deal. Yeah. Well, first of all, you got to remember I worked for you know, large corporations like EMC and, and Sun where I got used to kind of these, these numbers. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing, you know, and even and behind the numbers, there's people. Yeah. is the more important aspect of really kind of, you know, the way I look at it and kind of the thing I'm passionate about is taking technology to market. Um, and that's about human emotions and connecting with people and delivering value Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have something that somebody else has to have, they're going to pay you 95% of the time you're going to close a deal, right? Um, and when, when you have something, they, they have to have it, right? So the, the numbers are less meaningful. You don't need to be greedy because you want them to come back and you want returning customers and life. And, you know, we purposefully chose to build a subscription-based business on that kind of premise, which is mm-hmm. we want to be held to a higher standard, which is, we're constantly going to be delivering more value and our customers are constantly going to be continuing to renew their subscription as a result of that. Right. Um, and so when we went to, to talk to suitors around, you know, potential opportunities, it was just like another conversation we we're having with investors, which is, yeah, at the end of the day, it's a spreadsheet. Does it matter if it's a few more zeros? Not so much. Um, it matters, you know, when, when you look at the take home, right. When right. you bring it home, that's like a, that's a big deal. Um, but as far as the business is concerned, it's all about how much money you can pour back into the business. You know, mm-hmm. if I, the way I think about, like I had this mentor, Sarah, um, who was an industrial design engineer and like any problem you'd throw at her would be simplified into this like three letter, um, diagram, which is like input process output, mm-hmm. right? You put something in, you do this thing and then something comes out. So the way I look at companies is a very simple input process output. It's a little machine. You put a little bit of money in, you do this magic. That's your intellectual property or your value you bring to customers. And the, the output is more dollars than you put in. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you are able to build this machine and so you go raise money or you bootstrap or you put blood, sweat and tears or a combination of all three of those things in, you build this machine that actually makes money. Then how much money were you going to put in as much as you possibly can, because it's getting multiplied. Right. So now the conversation of how much we put in is just a conversation of how much can this machine scale? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets into kind of like the numbers start to matter. Um, 
but you know, we, we were lucky to surround ourselves with people that have, um, you know, built businesses before, sold businesses before. I always sought to kind of get, you know, mentors and kind of advisors into uh, my realm. Um, so even if I was going up against something I personally haven't done, you know, ever faced, there's always someone I could talk to that's been in something similar, bigger, smaller, slightly different, but yeah, it was yeah. never felt alone. Yeah. Wow. So who did you like go out and find mentors and coaches from just your jobs and people you've met or did you hire someone or how did you figure out to even start doing that? Yeah. Well, first I'd say I'm always doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try to learn from, you know, everybody I meet is uh, really good at something. They might not know it. I might not know it. Uh, but we all have like really unique skills. So you can learn from everybody. Um, and you, you just got to try to like suss it out. Um, but I'm always, you know, I'm a pretty straightforward guy. So I'm not, I'm never afraid to go up to people that, you know, I look up to and say, look, you know, I'd really like to probe your brain on a certain topic. Um, you know, some people I would just casually meet with and have like a, you know, coffee others where I felt like they could provide ongoing value. I said, I want you to be part of my journey mm-hmm. and I'd give them a little bit of equity. Um, very rarely I like, could hire like a contract, you know, advisor, um, because, you know, advice is easier to give than it is to execute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> yeah. So who do you, I mean, who is, is there anyone in particular that you looked up to business life, you know, like that you've been working yeah. with for a while or it's made a big um, impact? Yeah. I would say like my number one, and this is going to be, sound like a cliche, but it's not, uh, is Marcus Aurelius. Uh-huh. It was the last of the good emperors. Um, and I read his book meditations. And if you remember back in the day when we met Tel Aviv, yeah. I went on to learn computer science and I balanced that out with philosophy. Okay. Because like I needed something that was a little bit more, you know, stimulating and kind of, uh, offsetting from the like rigor of computer science. Yeah. Ones and zeros. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the ones and zeros. Exactly. Um, and what's cool about it is like when you read about some of these guys that have gone through hardships and like, this guy went through every hardship you could possibly imagine mm-hmm. with friends with family, with politics, with, you know, empire building, etc. cetera. Um, it's basically the same, right? The technology is different. He didn't have like a, you know, an iPad, um, air conditioning. Um, but he was surrounded by other people that were highly competitive and highly competent. And he had, you know, the daily struggles and responsibilities, um, and wanted to kind of personally grow. And kind of my, my takeaway from that is, like the journey is the way you hear this, you know, a lot, but it mm-hmm. truly is like those hardships, they make you better. Um, and so that's someone I look up to is like to fully embrace that kind of ideology of the obstacle is the way. Um, and th- those challenges, while it's more comfortable to avoid them or not even face them to begin with, like you can't get better, right. Um, by just idling, you got to like put yourself out there and, and get out of the, like the words I use today is like, get out of the comfort zone and get into the courage zone. Mm-hmm. How do you know you're in that courage zone? It feels awkward. Sometimes it hurts. Right. And it's, yeah, it's like not comfortable. Yeah. I remember I, you were, I think you were the first person I ever heard this from say, and this is 20 years ago, like whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Yeah. You know, I remember you saying that. I, I can't military. remember. Yeah. I can't yeah. remember why, but yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> that's an Israeli military saying. Yeah. Yeah. So how, like, Tell me more about that. Is that something that still works for you or is that a little different? Has it evolved now to? No, it still works for me for sure. I mean, it's like, you know, it's something I try to instill in my kids. 
right? Mm-hmm. Which is like your job is not to get the best grades. It's to learn how to learn, right? As right. a student. Um, and that kind of, you know, and I, and I try to point it out like those areas of, you know, um, I think it requires a lot of self-awareness, but like the way I, I look at it is like, you know, I'll pull my kid aside after like a basketball game. I'm like, you were in the zone, right? You can yeah. feel it, like, and you're sweating and it was hard right? and you're exhausted and you like the reward of winning in this case, right? Like that feeling, that zone, that's you pushing yourself beyond you, what your comfort zone is. You're not you're much more comfortable sitting in the stands, you know, chomping on, you know, a hot dog and, uh, and drinking and watching somebody else do it, but you're never going to get that satisfaction of the win. And then you can carry that same thing into like math, right? Which is, yeah, it sucks when they ask you to solve all these problems, but that pain that you're feeling in your brain is the same pain that you feel in your muscles when you're pushing yourself. Um, and it's going to make you better and smarter. And by the way, that brain muscle is far more valuable than your, your leg muscles, unless you make it into the NBA. Right? Yeah. All bets are off. <laughs> All bets are off. I know. Not, I don't think there are as many Israelis in the NBA, are there? There is. Only Cosby. Oh, yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> Representing? <laughs> um, so I want to know, like, you're – I, I want to – I mean – your dad was uh, was was someone who I looked up to in like business. I didn't even know half of what he did. I just could yeah. tell like his attitude on the like I couldn't understand half the conversations, and I, but I could tell like his attitude and there was this in the way he carried himself. Like how what what do you feel like he like did he inspire you in any of this or is he? I mean I'm sure he has, but like in what way? Hundred percent. So have you taken from so him? Marcus Aurelius is like two thousand years ago. Yeah. So next after him. Uh, which is an honorable spot. Definitely my dad, my parents, yeah. my dad, you know, is, um, he comes from a long line of entrepreneurs. So his parents were both entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he himself, you know, he had a long military career and even worked the corporate life, but then kind of left that comfort to go start something new. Yeah. Um, and he was in the automotive space as a mechanical engineer and, uh, aerospace and working on projects to kind of pioneer turbochargers for right. cars. Right. Oh wow! Um, and the way they make those things is they carve them out of these solid blocks of very, very expensive metal. You know, these alloys that are basically like these mixtures of very expensive metals, and then they keep the parts that they need, and the rest of the scraps they they dump. Um, and he basically looked at that and said, "This is like an environmental disaster and a financial windfall. Mm-hmm. You can figure out a way to kind of take these scraps and repurpose them." Uh, because there's more thrown away than there is kept. And this is wow. like, it's, it's very expensive. Um, and so he found this mentor and he turned into his partner that was like operating in this space. Um, and then he ventured off and basically built his own business to recycle precious metals. Um, and then that turned into like a bunch of, and he got to know a bunch of different, you know, businesses and people all over the world. And he was always kind of, you know, a connector. Yeah of like, you know, this person, that person, and finding other opportunities. So it kind of expanded his portfolio of different types of businesses. Um, but he was always kind of of the notion of you, you, you want to be, you know, two things I would say. One is you always want to be the giver, not the receiver. Mm-hmm. Right? So put yourself in that position where you can be the person that's giving. Um, and the second is like you, it, it's, it's worse to not try um, and not fail than it is to, to try and fail. You, you want to put yourself out there, go fail. Um, and for me, it was like, initially was that kind of, I felt like I had someone had my back. Yeah. Right. So it's like, 
Worst thing, I come back, I live with my folks. You know, for some people, that's like the worst possible thing on the planet. For me, it's not. Um, But it's, I always knew I had someone had my back. And I think what also inspired me was like, my dad didn't have that privilege. He lost his dad when he was 19 Mm -hmm. and his mom couldn't afford to go like, he went out there and had to fight it on his own. Um, So like, however hard you think you have it, there's always people um, that had it way worse or have it way worse than you do and still make the best out of it. So it's, you know, it's get your head on straight. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know, like, I mean, we had some conversations, but it was so long ago that like, I wasn't even in the zone of thinking I was ever going to start a business, you know, know, and it, but over time, I feel like it's just the exposure to all these different people in my life that gave me these tools um, to go and and do something different, you know, which is like my dad wasn't an entrepreneur. I mean, you know, he was a, he was a cardiologist that, and it was in practice for himself and had a bunch of people around it, but they weren't making the same types of decisions, even though they technically own the business. Right. I mean, like there's a difference. You own a business and you're an entrepreneur. There's two slightly different things. Yeah. Um, What do you, like one of the things that that I want to know, and like you had kind of shared a little bit about is like, I know that you, you know, as a serial entrepreneur yourself and working with all these other people, what are the common things that you see in others who are successful that makes them great or makes them get to the point where they feel like they've accomplished, you know, something or other people might see like, Hey, wow, that's amazing. But you know, yeah. Well, we talked a lot about the kind of the overcoming your fear and putting yourself out there. Yeah. I would say persistence is by far number one because mm-hmm. right? going out there and failing once yeah. not going to be so figuring out a way to be persistent and then that helps you kind of fail fast and fail cheap. Yeah. Right. So if you, a lot of small failures that don't kill you is going to make you stronger. Mm-hmm. One big one that does kill you is not going to make you stronger. Right. Um, so be smart about it. <clears throat> um, and I would say definitely the, the characteristic that I, you know, that feels the strong, that feel the strongest about is persistent. Um, the other one is, uh, is kind of humility, I would say, which is this notion of understanding that you have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And as you get better, you realize you have more to learn. Uh, right. And you're now able to learn more because you know more, not that you know more, meaning you need to learn less. Um, and that is kind of opens up your appetite and thirst to surround yourself with other people and expand your horizons and your ideas and kind of um, and, and be able to take criticism and seek it out and say, mm-hmm. okay, what am I doing wrong? Right? What can I be doing better? How are other people doing things that, uh, that I should be doing? What other ideas you know, can I emulate and or come up with um, and collaborate with? Um, those are the things that I think make for, for strong entrepreneurs because, and I think that, you know, especially in my line of business, the team at the end of the day is kind of what's going to determine, you know, every day of the week, I'll bet on a strong team that care less about, it's not to say it's not important, the market and the product that they're focused on, but like a good team will find the way to, to, to adapt either the product or the market that they're serving or both mm-hmm. to get to, you know, the right outcome. Um, so you want people you can rely on that are trustworthy, like good. Like I have a zero asshole tolerance policy. I don't know if that violates the uh, explicit language clause in the podcast. That's okay. Half of my but, episodes are explicit. But, yeah. Surround yourselves with, with, you know, for me, it's like the boat test, right? Yeah. Are you going to like throw this person over the side of the boat if you get stuck with them? Or are you going to break out, you know, a bottle of beer and like then talk, you know, until you get rescued? Yeah. Um, and so you want people that you can partner with that are going to make you better versions of yourself. Um, and that's what I constantly look for. And not just in my partners, but like the people that I hire. Yeah. 
That's awesome. What's next for you? Like, what are you learning? Where do you want to go in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I've been at Cisco for a while, help run the, the go-to-market uh, functions and kind of taking our business uh, to the next level. Uh, we're 10 times as big as we were when we got acquired. Um, wow. I feel like we've done a lot. Um, I get involved with entrepreneurs because that's where I'm passionate about. Like, that's where I get a kick is seeing other people kind of, you know, grow into themselves. And, um, and I learn a lot from it in the process. So I've made some investments. I sit on a few boards, et cetera. I don't know yet, you know, where it is that I'm going to go. Um, like exactly after this, but um, I'm not done yet. That's for sure. Right. I can't sit on my ass and do nothing. <laughs> no, I know. Me neither. Jeez. Yeah. There's, there's always something. I think Andre said to me, he's like, Aaron, you're never going to stop. I was like, I know. <laughs> like there's always like, yeah. I got to have something well, exciting, you know, going on. Yeah. You're going to like, yeah, it's boring to like do nothing. That's uh, I like you get, it's kind of like working out. You get addicted to it. You know, if it's on your podcast, like we were just talking about like right. that feeling of being in the zone and that growth feeling. Yeah. It's addicting. It's not just, and I think it's like, uh, you get, you, you get a kick out of just that, you know, that ability to put yourself in that position is mm-hmm. rewarding in and of itself. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Um, just a few more questions and then, uh, we'll finish up. But what's one thing, like if you could go back to, you know, 20 year old Gil, you know, what would you, what would you tell him now that you, you know, like say, Hey, you need to know this or like, what do you know now? Like what, what have you discovered that you're like, ah, I wish I knew 20 years ago. That's a great one. So one of them I think is, so one of the like key pieces of advice that I get from my dad is let other people pay for your education because education is expensive, right? So like go work for other companies based on what you're going to learn, not how much you're going to make. So think of it as an education. Um, and so I took that like quite literally. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would go where I thought I would learn the most. And like at EMC, like actually like I went there because they paid for my education. Like they pay, they footed the bill for my MBA. Wow. Um, but if I had to go back, I would say start sooner on the entrepreneurial track. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you can learn a lot from working for somebody else. But I think one of the things that, you know, you realize after you mature a little bit is that even in big, very successful companies, things are the way they are, not necessarily because that's the way they're supposed to be, just because that's the way they are. Um, and, and there's still opportunity to innovate and to, you know, and to disrupt and kind of come up with better ways of doing things. Um, and so, like, the one, the one piece of advice I would give myself is, like, you know, start now. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. And what's your prediction for the next tech innovation? Because I know you're like deep in there, right? I mean, like what's, what's the next tech innovation that's going to change us? Yeah. Like, what is it? Like, yeah, Yeah, I I think, I think we're hitting like an inflection curve on a bunch of different technologies that are kind of merging together. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, and I think what people kind of don't fully appreciate is kind of the, the nonlinear effect of like an exponential growth factor um, so things, you know, the pace at which, what I mean by that is like, things aren't just going to go faster. The, yeah. the rate at which they're going to go faster is going to go faster. So this like multiplying effect. Um, and so I think that there's like, there's just been this tectonic shift to move towards more of a software defined world. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, there's things coming together like AI and borderline unlimited, um, bandwidth with 5g that's coming out um, and this notion of awareness around security um, and basically what now is like a complete 
blanketing of the world with social fabrics, um, those things are all going to come together to kind of redefine um, how we interact with each other and kind of with technology to make it uh, exponentially more ubiquitous. I don't know what that what that's going to be for like humanity. Yeah, because we're already addicted to our phones and to all these apps. Um, but I would expect that it's going to get you know a hell of a lot crazier really really fast. Yeah. And we're going to let go of some of kind of our old school ways of going about things. Yeah, I mean, I can already feel it. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, we're doing it right now. I mean, we're having a Zoom video conference, which used to cost thousands of dollars just 10 years ago. Right. And equipment and dedicated lines and other crap. And we could be doing this from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. It's like, uh, you know, but yeah, I think it is. It's getting faster. Even my, my daughter is like, when do I get a phone? <laughs> I'm just like, you're yeah. like, you're nine. You know, no. <laughs> We're having the same conversation. Yeah, I know. I know. My, my son is one step above where he was before. So, because now he has his iPad. Yeah. But before that, we would call him the iOS beggar. <laughs> people and say, "Can I get the iPhone? Can I borrow your iPad? Can I, <laughs> just for a few minutes." I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's it's a, as much of a distraction as a necessity now. Right. You know, when I look at like new people coming into the workplace, like they need that feed of data. So I think mm-hmm. things are going to progress towards that kind of yeah. uh, continuous stream of data um, in mobile devices, moving away from kind of desktop. Um, and, um, and I think, I think security is ripe for disruption and consolidating into right. the network. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, like you were saying, when you were saying, you know, everyone, when you pulled everyone a dollar for security for your, your server that's in the, in the chill room or the cloud to me, yeah. I'm thinking like, well, the cloud's the unknown. Of course I want that secure. I know like no one's going to walk in and steal my, walk off with my computers and maybe they can, you know, yeah, it's been a problem for a while, but this is like this unknown, like what is this going to yeah. do to me and my business and the world? Like, yeah. of course I want that secure, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's logical to me. You know, I think that's, that's pretty awesome. So um, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you feel like is important? No, I mean, I, I don't... I, maybe I'll ask you, you know, yeah. what, um, from what I've told you, you think is relevant to kind of the, the PT world and the cash PT world for small businesses. You know, I want to be able to kind of, to make it relevant for, you know, for small business owners that are kind of contemplating, you know, not necessarily going out raising, you know, mega million dollar rounds, et cetera. But I think, you know, the fundamentals are the same, right? They're still starting yeah. a business. Yeah. Business yeah. is business is business, whether you, you know, have one customer or 5 million customers. It's the the 98% of it's the same. There might be some terms and language that I use. It's different, but that's going to be different if my customer is a, a a internet cloud customer or an in-person, it's a, you know, it's a slightly different service. I think one of the things that, that, that the people that I work with a lot of times struggle with is they got into this to help people and they realized that uh, they never thought I was going to have to start a business. You know, business is this brand new, unknown, scary thing. And it's helpful to see like, look, like people like you and me can have a huge business or what I call like small business. The technical term for small business, I think is like a hundred to a thousand, you know, a thousand employees or less is a small business. Like to me, I like, I'm like, where's the micro business tax cut? You know, because like businesses with less than 10 employees or even one micro business, that's what, you know, that's what I do and I have and a lot of people I work with have and the principles are the same. So I think seeing it on different scales and different levels is just, it's just helpful, you know, be like, Oh yeah. 
you know, yeah, cool. it is the same problem. He's got an employee, you know, he's got a message and market problem and they don't match. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, 100%. I agree. You know? cool. I mean, that's the thing. Like, and that's why it's like, you know, when I saw you in Boston a few years ago, I was like, all right, I got to spend some more time on the phone with Gil. And then like a month ago, I was like, wait a minute. I gotta get Gil on the podcast because it's a right. great forum to talk about some of these things. So thank you very much. Cool. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. Awesome. And so if someone wants to connect with you online, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, or internet somewhere, where could we find you? LinkedIn is probably the best place for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so just Gil Zimmerman with two N's. Okay. Um, and one L. Um, All right, yeah. cool. Well, we'll throw that up on the, on the show notes and I'll, I'll uh, share the video and all that stuff. With cool. You. All right. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gil. I, I really appreciate your carving out some time for us today. For sure. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. All right. All right. And for the Cash PT Lunch Hour, this is Aaron LeBauer and Gil Zimmerman. And uh, go out and crush your day. Take action. Be persistent. And don't be a fail, afraid to fail. All right. Thanks, Gil. All right. Catch you later. <laughs> Hey, what's up, this is Aaron. Real quick, if you're just getting started with a cash practice, then be sure to check out my step-by-step checklist, which will walk you through the whole process. Go to cashptchecklist.com to get your free cash PT checklist, where you'll learn all the essential steps you need to take to get started. It's absolutely free and always will be. Over 5,000 people have already downloaded it, so make sure you don't miss out. And if you're already a business owner, but not generating the revenue you think you deserve or have the time, the freedom that you want, and you would like to grow and scale your business in the shortest amount of time possible, then you may be a great fit for my Cash PT Platinum Mastermind Group. Just head over to cashptmastermind.com where you can get all the details and apply for a free strategy call where you'll get clarity on your vision and a path to getting there.